Howdy folks, welcome to our podcast, Life in the Saddle. This is Ben Longwell with True West Horsemanship. We're glad you're here. Join us as we share stories and adventures and interview extraordinary men and women in the equine and ranching industries to gain insight into horsemanship and life itself. It is our mission to help people and their horses better understand one another and achieve together that which they cannot do individually. Thanks for riding along with us. Hey there, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have been so excited to share this episode with Nicole Masters, talking about soil health specifically for horses. And we're super excited to let you know that Nicole's teamed up with us for a discount code on her soil course for the horses for equine grazing management. We're going to have this in the show notes, but uh, the discount code is TRUEWEST25, all one word, TRUE and WEST being capitalized. Again, I'll have that in the show notes. Check that out at her website, integritysoils.com, and get yourself a discount on her soil health course for horses. The other thing I needed to tell you right quick is, for those of you who don't know, we're going to be hitting the road here in another month or so. In October, we've got some clinics we're starting to line up and get nailed down. We're going to be throughout the West over the next four, five, six months. Please keep an eye on our social media and our website. We're going to have our schedules up. We're going to be in Idaho, Southern Idaho in November. That's the first one we've got nailed down. We've got a couple in California in January and probably the end of January, early February will be in Arizona and so on and so forth. So stay tuned and make sure you touch base with us if you're interested, if you want to join up. We also may have time for private contracts as we go along. So if you or someone you know would like to advance your horsemanship, regardless of breed or discipline, improve your communication, your understanding, your partnership with your horse, regardless of age and, uh, and what your goals are, be sure and get in touch with us. All right, without further ado, here's Nicole Masters. All right, everybody. Hey, thanks for jumping on and tuning in here today. I hope you're having a great day. I'm pretty excited here to sit down with Nicole Masters, who just happens to be in Montana right before we're headed, fixing to head over there and move there now. So by the time you listen to this, um, we're going to be neighbors uh, across the crazy mountains there in Montana. And um, Nicole is a specialist with regenerative agriculture. And for, for some of you thinking, what the heck? I thought I was listening to a horse podcast. Just hang on a sec. Uh, it's something I've been interested in for quite some time, uh, working with the, the biology of the soil to improve land, improve the atmosphere, improve really our, our animals' lives and ultimately our lives as well. And so Nicole had been in touch with us a little bit about some horse stuff over in Montana, and, and we were thinking the same, getting in touch with her about this soil health deal. And, and I had seen one of her books. I've done a little bit of reading on this subject and stuff. So again, Nicole, thank you so much for sitting down here today and being willing to let me kind of pick your brain and, and share some of what you're, you specialize in. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Ben. Yeah, and we're very excited to see you in Montana. While you are the cowboy in New Zealand right now, I guess I'm the Kiwi in, in Montana. So <laughs> we've got a lot in common. Yeah, yeah it's a strange world. <laughs> um, yeah, let's just jump into a little bit of what you do, what your services are and a little bit about your history and how you kind of got into that, even how you ended up being over there in Montana. And then we'll, we'll start talking horses and regen ag agriculture. Oh. Yes, please. Thank you. 
Uh, so I'm an agroecologist. Uh, so what that means is I work on productive landscapes through the lens of ecology. So applying ecological principles in terms of um, interconnectedness, uh, cycle restoration, nutrient density, food quality, water cycles, climate mitigation, all of these things kind of come under the umbrella of what I do. Uh, for the last 15 years, I guess I've been working more in the consultancy and education side. And since COVID hit, I've really stepped back from the one-on-one -on -one consultancy and we're de developing online programs as well as more intensive training programs to coach the coaches. So my background is in systems thinking, soil science um, and horses, interestingly enough. Yeah, so oh. I, <laughs> my first love, the horse. Yeah, and I, I, I traveled, I came here first in the US in 2013 and just absolutely fell in love. It was the funniest thing. I was at this conference with Ranching for Profit and there were like 600 producers in the room and I was the keynote speaker and I walked down these stairs and everyone's got their cowboy hats on and they like take their hat off and go, howdy ma'am. And I was like, you people are real? You know, like, <laughs> I just thought you were in books. And so <laughs> it was like an instant, uh, like just a love affair really and and maybe I still idolize the the ranching lifestyle in some ways but I wanted to be in a place where people actually work still work with the horse and Montana is where you're going to find them absolutely and I have to laugh about that story because my wife was kind of the same when we met and she asked you know what do you do and I was with my brother at the time and and we basically said yeah we're we're uh working cowboys we do a bit of day work and stuff and sort of had to explain that and she was just dumbfounded she just said you mean like in the movies you know it's like well <laughs> no not really <laughs> not at all I, I do get a lot of emails from friends saying I'm watching that movie Yellowstone is Montana like that and I'm like yeah well the landscapes are but nothing else and don't come here. We, you don't need to live here. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> We're seeing a huge amount of people moving out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's happening everywhere. So, oh, yeah. um, so you ended up coming to Montana or the States in 2013, and then you did a bit of travel back and forth. So you were based still here in New Zealand at that time. Yeah, I, um, I was still married. Um, and we had a small farm just in Waipukurau and my ex-husband was doing horse, a horse breaking enterprise and had, had another business and I was doing the education and what I've found over the years is that uh, it's a lot easier to be an educator and do what is a very specialized niche by traveling. I had to go overseas really to make a living off what I was doing. Um, New Zealand although I love it dearly, is very small in a lot of ways. You know, there's only so many workshops that people could probably do with me. <laughs> Whereas For here sure. I can, you know, I can do workshops in Montana or I'll go to Colorado or Oregon and Vermont, you know, and, and you're dealing with a, a whole new crew of people that are dealing with some really unique challenges. So I love traveling and I love just meeting people and seeing, you know, what is it that people are dealing with here and how different is that from, New Zealand or Australia or here in Montana and so it's really helped me develop my observation skills and my skills in terms of 
you know, leaving my assumptions at the farm gate when I drive in and um, yeah, just, just working with people is a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat where I do enjoy traveling and um, getting to help lots of different people with lots of different situations. And it's, as I'm sure you found too, in your field, you never stop learning. And, and every day is an opportunity to, you know, try to find something new or a different way of doing things or think a little bit outside the box and, and see if you can't uh, help folks come to some solutions mm -hmm. with things. So, um, so when did you end up basing yourself over there? And was that quite a, I mean, obviously quite a shift geographically, but did that sort of, is that sort of where you started off with really traveling and doing more workshops and stuff? Um, I think I've always traveled a lot, but having my own farm meant, you know, you are more grounded in your own property. So I haven't had my own real land, like my own that I own um, for six or seven years now. So since, since I sold that property, it has pretty much just been full-time on the road. And then with COVID, I got my first house. Yeah. So I had no house for five years. I was just living in a horse trailer and taking my horse and going from property to property, living with ranchers and farmers. And I don't know, it was just, it just felt like a very idyllic lifestyle. Absolutely. But actually there's nothing idyllic. It's a lot of hard work, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Until I, I can got, see that. Yeah. Yeah. Would've, yeah. Would've and now I've got fun. walls and it's pretty fancy. Yeah, it was, it was too much. Sometimes I feel like, um i'm almost apologetic for i'm just having too much fun <laughs> like, life is amazing <laughs> um yeah and then uh it must be two years ago i put out my book for the love of soil and that has has been incredible the reception to that's been amazing um but it came out right before covid and i had to cancel 55 events and it was the best thing ever was just to wow come come get a house and settle for a while so I've been really enjoying that that's cool that's cool and you mentioned before that that sort of pushed you into developing your the opportunity to start developing things a little bit more online which I think that's been the case obviously with a lot of different industries and stuff it has and one of the courses I developed was a soil horse course and people are like what you want a course for horses on soil I'm like Yes, if anyone needs it, it's, and you know this, it's it's the owners, it's the people that we're working with. It's not the horse or the land or the soil, or it's the, the people at the center of that. And um, I see probably some of the worst management happens with horse owners, and they blame the horse. Everyone thinks the horse is so terrible, but it, it's a management issue. Right, right. Well, we're going to need to dig a little deeper into that, I think. So... <laughs> Can you, for our listeners, kind of give us a description of what are we talking about when we talk about regenerative agriculture? What is the premise? What's what's a little bit of the science behind that and the why? The why? Mm. Well, for me, regenerative agriculture has a very loose definition and it's for a reason. It It is an approach to land management that is interested in improving outcomes. And those outcomes are soil, e uh, ecosystem, human, animal. Like it's it's all of those domains of, of life in terms of are we regenerating ourselves? Are we um, improving our animal outcomes? Are we improving water quality? Um, 
ground cover, all of these things. So soil which, is part of that. And what drives that? <laughs> which is where you get the term holistic management, where it, you are looking at really the whole picture. That's right. And I think everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. So for some of us, um, you know, soil might be a focus. Some people, it might be family. Some, it might be community. You know, there's always domains that we excel in and then other areas of life that we need a bit more work and support. And so that's kind of where I come in, in terms of where are these areas that you're committed to, but there's a gap between the actions that you're taking and the outcomes that we're seeing on that landscape. And so I originally was involved in organics. So in New Zealand, I was the co-chair on the board for the Soil and Health Association when I was 27, 28, um, long passionate in organics. And yeah, it organics for me started to feel very dogmatic or that people would cheat. You know, here's a rule, here's a regulation, you can't do this and people will find just ways to cheat. And it started to become a very shallow approach. And that's what I'm interested in. And, and we've, we're truly regenerating. How do we do that, do that in a deep ecological manner? Um, so yeah, that we know that we really are fulfilling on our goals and we are leaving the land in better shape. Right. Now, what are some of the basic ways or what would you say, like you're talking to an audience that may or may not have a very firm handle on, on what, the, what that all means? What are the outcomes? What are the processes for improving the animal or the quality of life for people? What are we, what are we talking mm -hmm. about here? Well, I think if we if we think through this through the lens of horse owners, you know, we come into a landscape and we see um, a lot of compaction. We see a lot of invasive weeds. Um, we potentially see, you know, ticks and lice and worms, uh, animal behavioral problems, hoof problems, skin problems, all of these things. And so it's looking through that in terms of how do I how do I bring vibrant health to a landscape? What would it look like? to manage that ecosystem so that soils um, allowed water to move in. We find a lot of water repellency on horse properties. Um, you know, and everyone knows the value of rainfall. You know, we wanna see soils that work like a sponge and hold on to water instead of what we get right now, which is drought to mud to flash floods. You know, like just there's this, this total dysfunction. So when I'm working with people, we talk about how soil is like, a, is the gut system of a plant and many soils in New Zealand have rampant diarrhea. So like Crohn's disease. So the, the nutrients are just flowing through, the water's flowing through, everything's washing through. Or we come out here to many um, rangeland soils and they have constipation, right? That whole function of that biology just slows right down and we don't get good nutrient absorption. Um, it's probably quite painful for that soil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a really good picture uh the difference you know looking at it like the gut of the plants and the difference between having the runs and and being constipated and really you know those two extremes like you say drought or flash floods like that's mm -hmm. those two extremes that's not healthy that's not helping anything so when it comes to horses like compaction and you know where they prefer very much to eat the species they like and you, then you end up with these invasive weeds. What are some of the things, you know, where do you start with that? Where does a horse owner, especially if they're a backyard horse owner, they've got one or two horses, they've got probably not enough acreage. I mean, all these things, these complications, how do you, how do you, where do you start helping somebody like that? 
So when I was in Waipokero, one of the things we were doing was um, starting young horses. And as part of that process, and you might run something similar, is those young horses would live in a cell by themselves, separated you know, maybe by a meter from another cell so they can't kick you or whatever. But those cells would have a horse in there for the entire time that that horse has been worked on. So that might be, you know, four to six weeks. So when that horse would come out, there'd be nothing growing, right? It's just dust and dirt. Um, and if we did nothing, what will come in are your early successional weeds. So in New Zealand, this might be buttercup. Um, this might be dock. It might be things that are not very palatable to horses and it's not because the horse won't eat it it's because that soil is sending a signal for those plants to germinate so i i see weeds as like your fingerprints on a piece of land it's kind of saying well, this is what you've been doing in historically um and so we would come in after a horse had come out and apply a biological stimulant so that stimulant might have a little bit of fish, it might have a little bit of molasses, um, a little bit of seaweed, some liquid lime, because what we find is that effect of compaction, those plates, those soils become very tight. So a little bit of calcium can actually help to flocculate or open up and aggregate those soils. Um, and if we didn't do that process, we're going to get all those really gnarly weeds. If we did do that process, it would shift and we would see um, soft palatable grasses, Timothy, um, legumes would come into the system um, and just diverse plant mixes. Right. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but adding that biological stimulant would also change the pH of the soil too, to encourage the germination of those other species. Yep. So pH can be a germination signal. And we often think of, you know, so, uh, horses acidifying soil conditions. Um, and that is around a function of what is happening with that soil. Um, I'm a big fan of vermicast. So I actually make a worm compost using horse manure, straw, any kind of waste products, vegetable scraps, anything I can find. And so if you are on two acres and right now you're piling up these heaps of manure and you don't know what to do with it, start making it into vermicast. It's a very, very high quality input um that you can make high quality and then you can actually put that back on your fields and it will change the germination signal to um perennial grasses right right so um while these a lot of these horse owners are busy removing you know their their manure every day or every other day or whatever and and you know obviously trying to take care of their land doing that there would be some value to using that to basically get a good compost going and um, and actually reapply that in the right places. That's right. You know, the, the thing that makes me feel so sad is I drive past a place and someone's got bags of horse manure outside for 50 cents or a dollar. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, it's literally you're sitting on um, a gold mine for nutrients and food for worms. And it doesn't have to be very um, energy or time cons consuming it's just as time consuming to pick up um the manure you know yeah. so then you know uh, I'll, I'll share some resources that you can put on your website just yeah yeah definitely we can go and look at for free mm -hmm. yeah we'll um definitely and at the end too we'll have you um share your your websites and and where people can can get hooked up with following your work and what you do and and more 
like you say, more resources for further further study. Um, so, um, what are some of the steps or processes that you would that you would help people to start to instigate? Like you were saying before, you did uh, you know you used to do quite a few one on one type mm -hmm. consultations. What you're going to a place, you start to notice these things, like you say, there's maybe compaction or invasive weeds. What steps, or did you have a process that you'd give them and say, oh, I suggest you do this and, and you get this going and, and this is how you're going to manage it. it needs this much rest. I mean, let's talk a little bit more about the, the actual boots on the ground approaches that you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's in part why I wrote the book for the love of soil was to help people triage some of these decisions themselves. Like, What's the number one limitation to growth and health and performance on a property after the sun, of course, I want the sun to go out, that would be bad, but like what's next is air. Just like we can't survive long without airflow, neither can the microbiology or plants or anything in the soil. So what's happening with air? And so going out and digging holes, looking for plates, looking for that compaction layer, um, asking the question about what's causing that compaction. Is it me? And generally the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. Is it, yeah, yeah. Is it your grazing recoveries? Um, is there just not living green roots in there? Um, and so, yeah, the, the book kind of takes people through that triage a little bit. And I have a case study in there from Lindsay Farm Racing uh, in Caraca in South Auckland. Right. In terms of, you know, they had, they had multiple issues. Um, and so we we walk through, uh, we actually ran an aerator over that property. We balanced their minerals. We stimulated microbiology. We introduced uh, more diverse plant species. Um, and it was just amazing to see the changes in livestock and their bloodstock sales guys said that it was the best that the young horses had ever looked. Um, behavioral issues changed, like the jockeys were reporting right. that horses weren't dying when they're coming around the track. Um, ticks went away. It was it was fascinating. But yeah, they had a lot of bare ground. They had a lot of cracking, big compaction. So we kind of threw all the different things. But it, 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 yeah, they were an interesting case study. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, this is, I want to see more diversity in my horse mixes. Most people are buying a property, moving in, and that property might have had cattle on in the past. So it's probably got a lot of ryegrass and clover. Those species are for cows. Horses are not cows. You know, they have a totally different digestive system. They don't have a rumen. They don't have the microbiology in a rumen that's designed to break down high sugars. And so right. then we end up with, yeah all these animal health issues and all these metabolic the founder and navicular and um yeah behavioral issues that are from the fact that we're not feeding horses horse feed basically right. yeah exactly now just to backtrack like what you're saying there just a bit a minute ago just for those who are, are still trying to understand can you talk a little bit more about the roots and the biology and really the interaction um, of the plant and the plant health and ultimately the nutrients that are going to be available for grazing animals, how that all interacts with that whole basic ecosystem, the whole world that's basically in the soil or should be in the soil. 
because um, I find that I just find that really, really fascinating. And up until a year ago, I had no idea just about, you know, some of the stuff that's going on there. Um, and and oh. then building on that, let's touch on to um, just before I forget uh, diversity, you know, the, the benefits of the diversity, not just for the oh. animals needing diverse nutrients, but also what it's doing for the soil. Yeah. Yeah, good questions. You might have to remind me if I, because I'm going to go on a spiel right now and I might miss something. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to remember. But, yeah. But I want you to imagine like the plant, not only is it outsourcing its stomach, it's outsourcing its entire immune system, um, its regulatory, everything that we do in our bodies, plants predominantly do out in the soil. And they do that in relationship with microbiology. So um, let's say you're low in zinc. So, because that's pretty common out here. Um, the plant will actually signal to specific microbiology and say, hey, I really need some zinc. And if you give me some zinc, I'm gonna pay you in sugar that I've collected from the sun. So plants that have this amazing ability to capture sunlight energy and then pump typically around 30% of those sugars out their root zone. And in those sugars, there's also all these metabolites and these signals from the plant is literally saying, hey, hello need some zinc or I need some water. Is there anyone that can help out? Now, if you have a healthy, robust microbial metropolis under the ground, then those microbes, those groups that the plant's signaling to can respond. So that might be the presence of a fungus called mycorrhizae, right? So it connects inside the plant root and it expands right down through the soil profile, much deeper to bring up water, nitrogen and zinc and phosphorus. Um, and so basically the plant's like the sugar daddy for the entire soil environment. And it's, it's paying for all these systems. I know I have terrible language, but Americans don't know what to do with me, I'll tell you. Um, so, <laughs> you can imagine. So picture that like that whole soil world is a city and it's hallways and corridors and elevator shafts and bedrooms and bathrooms and hospitals and schools and banks and even a pub, you know, and, and the more diversity that they have under the ground, they can start to um, provide services. So they'll be producing antibiotics. They will be providing what we call secondary metabolites by stimulating that plant. So this is where the diversity piece comes in is, I wanna see pastures that have, you know, seven different species of a legume that have chicory and plantain, like our forbs, you know, a big broadleaf. I want some dandelions in there. I, you know, I want it to be a raucous color and leaf, pro, you know, like different types of solar panels on those leaves and different choices for those animals because they'll self-medicate. The horses can tell this has this secondary metabolite that I need for health, or this has the zinc in it, this has calcium in it, this has whatever nutrient or vitamin that that animal needs. And the diversity that you provide through ensuring that you have a whole lot of things. You know, we see sometimes like horses eating thistles, you know, they know that there's something in that thistle for them and they'll go to it at certain times. So the more that we can kind of set that up, the more diversity above ground, the benefit for, for animals and then more diversity below ground, we're gonna to start to see this metropolis building. But what I find on most horse properties is you don't have the metropolis, the school's gone, the bank is gone, the hospital's gone, as we compact that soil. And then the last thing to go might be the pub, that community's crashed. You know, no one's gonna stay in that town anymore if it doesn't have a pub. 
Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Cool. And, and I think, again, <laughs> that's a really good picture for people to see that there literally is this whole metropolis under there or should be a variety. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one um, type of, of fungi and then there's, uh, and I'm, you're going to have to help me with the words, but you know, protos, protozoa, protozoa. And, yes. um, you know, nematodes. Yeah. Those guys. And they all serve different purposes and respond to the plants or the root signals for different needs. And, and like you say, the, the, a lot of times I think in our, our mind, we've, without realizing it, we see a, a pristine pasture with like basically a monoculture, one type of grass, and it's all the same height, you know, and it all looks uniform. And we're like, wow, that's a nice looking pasture, but mm -mm. not so much, you know, it, it the diversity is is where the nutrients come in both for the animals the grazers as well as the underworld um, un under the the surface that we don't even see totally and they, they just did a study that was published in new zealand on dairy cows that showed if you are only feeding ryegrass and clover to animals their cortisol levels go up so that's stress but they they actually measured um, it must be a hormone produced in the body, but they basically measured like that animal's purpose in life. And if it isn't able to forage, like all it has is ryegrass and clover to choose from all day, it's actually a humane animal issue. So if you aren't providing diversity for your animals, it's a humane issue. And horses are not graziers, they're browsers, you know, so that's why they got the, the their teeth, you know, people, you know, you get the dentist and those teeth naturally would wear down because they're going to eat on some branches. They're going to, you know, be eating some flax or whatever you can find. So uh, the property that I had, we actually had forage blocks that we could allow animals to eat so they can chew on some branches and leaves and just get all of that diversity because there's so many health compounds and things like antelmentics or natural wormers in many, um, especially in New Zealand, a lot of native species are natural dewormers that horses will eat. Absolutely, absolutely. So in doing what you've done even there in Montana or when you were still here in New Zealand, as you're helping people, and again, we'll just stick with the horse owners because um, that's our, our listeners here. What, um, like what steps did they need to take? Were, were they, a lot of them are they reseeding? Do you have a seed mix that you've developed, or that you do you work with um, companies that do that? And then rest periods. Um, how do you manage that with horses? And and what do you find is a typical rest period for different areas for, to for recovery? I'm going to say something that's going to literally blow people's minds, and they're going to freak out and probably go, "Well, I can't do that." But the minimum pasture number that you should have. For rotation is 16. 16. And that allows us to have time to come back and rotate so that those pastures are getting adequate rest. Like we've just come inside uh, because we've moved an electric fence. I was talking to the landlord and saying, we need to right now just restrict their movement, restrict their access to grass because everything's just coming through right now. And if we are out there nipping that down, the horses are going to take the best stuff out of the field. Um, and you can see it, there's these big bald patches. Um, they're going to leave the stuff that they don't want, but they're going to take that best stuff and it's actively growing. So the following day it's growing. So they nip it again. 
and then the following day it grew again and they come back and they nip it again well goodbye absolutely. to that plant. so absolutely this, the best stuff is gone um so uh we might reseed in the first year and we'll, we'll put things on like vermicast onto the seeds it's called bio priming or good quality compost or seaweed actually on the seed um, that's going to help with strike but unless you address why is it that i haven't got pasture persistence or why is it that i'm just growing weeds um, that situation is going to creep in pretty fast and i think the main thing is really is getting into the habit of rotating so we actually had our main herd on a rotation with the cattle. So they were running with cattle and you'd think, well, they're gonna get really fat. But what we found was skinny horses would put weight on, fat horses would lose weight because it's nutrient dense, right? And it's a, it was a quality mixed diverse forage. You know, there was probably 20 to 30 species in our mix. Um, and so we didn't have problems with, well, I've never had a problem with foundering, um, lucky to say. It's not one of my favorites, um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah just sure. not seeing animal health issues. Mm. I'll be okay. That's interesting. So you you ran them with the cows, and and obviously they were on the same feed mix or sorry seed mix, um, and yet you didn't have issues with horses getting fat or or having too much sugar or carbs no. in their in their diet. No, but we're doing a tall grass grazing system. Right. So um, there's a lot of lignin and cellulose and taller grass pasture systems. So um, less of that free sugar. Most what people do with horses is they're grazing incorrectly in terms of they're feeding the very stressed short grass systems. And that's where your um, non-structural carbohydrates are. That's the sugar that is going to make your horse crazy or give your horse bounder. Um, whereas if you're on taller pasture, it seems it, it seems counterintuitive. Yes. But we had a lot of like, yeah, we were growing, um, you know, chicory and plantain and Timothy Coxfoot, some of the older grass, grasses that um, are not your big dairy milk production, but we were finishing cattle on that just, just fine. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. So in general, even if a property is, you know, pretty overgrazed and compacted, you find that there's not necessarily a need to reseed as long as you get um, a good rotation schedule going and you and you get these guys in and out of these smaller, basically it would have to be smaller blocks, I, I guess. Um, like you say, getting that electric fence, just like we do with the cows, you know, to um, do higher density, basically less, less time on it and then lots of recovery time. Yeah, one of my favorite systems is the Equicentral process so Stuart um Myers why did I just forget her name ah I should know her name anyway and that equicentral process looks at you know there's certain times where you were going to have an event that's going to be detrimental like say a really really heavy rainfall event so you have sacrifice areas that you would stand off or you would feed on um and then being able to rotate those cells making sure you have shelter and things like that. Um, we actually had a racetrack system, which I liked because you can use the racetrack, you know, for long lining or riding or whatever. Um, but you can put horses in the track system so that they have to walk all the way around to water. And then if you were feeding them, they have to walk all the way back to, to feed um, and then come into their cell as such. And what I find is, you know, a lot of horses are just not moving enough. You know, we've got some 
people around here that have an avicular horse and i'm like it's like a dog put it on a leash if you're not going to ride it and take it for a walk but move and and the horses so that system i like well i like my racetrack system because we're encouraging that natural movement you can put some rocks in there to encourage some natural wear on feet or a little stream or things like that so i've i've worked with some producers to design systems to think how do we enable this horse to be a horse yeah absolutely and for those seed mixes or to get that diversity in the pasture do you do you mix up do you do that as well is that a service you offer or where do you direct people for for that Oh, it depends what country we're talking about, but there is an awful lot of seed companies that I think are sensitive to horses' needs. Um, you know, in New Zealand, there's specialty seeds and kiwi seeds, and oh, geez, there's another one that Lucetti. you know they specifically have horse. Sorry, Lucetti does some yes. here locally. Um, yeah, but I would be getting Forbes in there. Like, I, I mean, I'm I have a love affair with chicory anyway but you know getting chicory in the mix um phacelia flowering plants you know just like let's bring life you know bring in the bees and the butterflies and yeah and get over this idea that we want things to look like ryegrass and clover like that's tidy because actually it's not that's that's yuck it's yucky stop it it's boring (laughs) too boring it's so boring so 1990s yeah (laughs) oh that that is awesome so there in montana um obviously there's a lot of um you know backyard horse owners have you done much work with larger operations um whether they're horse breeders or ranchers that run quite a few horses and obviously have your bigger pastures and stuff have you done much work along with folks like that Mm -hmm. yeah Um, I was thinking we were actually bringing in some cattle for branding and the field was 60,000 acres and the rancher said, uh, just come in halfway. If they're any behind you, just leave them. (laughs) It's like too big to manage that. I would not want to be working for that guy, actually, that horrible Nevada soils. But um, yeah, a lot of my ranchers, you know, some of the best holistic managers that I know still manage their horses really really badly um and so <laughs> so it's like we, we understand this piece so i have some clients that um are starting to turn their operation around they were they were actually part of the remount program in world war one so they had a, a percheron thoroughbred quarter horse kind of mix that right. they were very proud of yeah and and the beautiful horses it's, it's actually where my horse came from and He's got a little bit of pressure on, big broad chest. Oh, he's like a rocking horse and I love him. Um, but they they had 270 horses that they're grazing on these fields and all that would grow in the end was something called poverty grass, which is as good as it sounds. Total compaction, total water repellency, nothing was growing on all of these fields. And so one, they had to wait for granddad to die so they could start destocking. So I think they're, they're down to 70 horses now from 270. Uh, and sometimes it is the old guard needs to pass for changes to happen. Um, yeah, and now they're putting in uh, cover crops to change their watering system, um, addressing some of their major imbalances and, and bringing, bringing grass back. But it's been, yeah, with very careful consideration about where those horses go and how they're grazed. 
for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's all those sorts of factors with different operations or family uh, ranches or farms. And I mean, that's, that's a whole story within itself. Um, thinking outside the box and, and getting past, you know, the way grand, grandpa might've done it or, or um, all those things. So with a deal like that, um, or even your, your smaller horse owners with one or two horses and, and they might have two acres or five acres or 10 acres, what size do you usually, I mean, obviously it depends a bit on the ground and, and what they're able to grow and stuff, but how big a cell that you're, are you cutting that up into with your electric fence uh, for those horses? So into a one hectare, so it's 2.5 acres. acres, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's 2.4, but it doesn't matter. Um, and that, that one hectare, we might split that into six, and that might have a couple of horses running around. And it's going to depend on your context. So are we talking rain-fed? temperate environment like New Zealand, or are we talking Northern Queensland? You know, there's going to be yeah, differences. Ab absolutely. There's going to be quite a few differences and we have listeners, you know, all over the world. So there's obviously some um, specific research to do within each locale, but um, I mean, you, you, you know, the old school grazing rates, like when I was growing up, it was just I don't know. I don't ever remember not knowing a time that I didn't know that it took at least 25 acres for a cow-calf pair where I grew up. Well, that's not regenerative agriculture. That's just, you know, grazing rates in a general sense for whatever, you know. Uh, horses, you know, roughly twice as much as a cow, you know, they they tend to eat a lot kind of a thing. But so you're saying if, if, if you got nearly two and a half acres and you cut that into six, that's something a little under half an acre per grazing cell. And that's going to vary quite a bit depending on the location and stuff. How long would you have them in there before you rotate? Um, so I'll, I'll take this example here because we have, we had six horses um, and they could be in say a one acre block. Um, and then ideally, you know, we're moving them and it depends on the time of the year, right? So right now, while that grass is coming through, either I'm going to put them in a sacrifice area or I'm going to move them every day, right? Otherwise, they're overgrazing. So the definition of overgrazing is not how long or how many. The definition of overgrazing is the repeat bite so that that plant starts to recover and then it's nipped down again. And you'll know that from holistic management. But that's what people miss is you can overgraze one horse on a hundred acres because they'll just stay in the same place if they're not moved at all. Um, so finding a system where you're able to split your property up as, as into as many cells as possible and then work out, let's say it is 16, how many days recovery do I need at this time of the year? So in winter, you don't have to, you can spend longer in those fields, right in the middle of the heat of summer when nothing's growing, you could spend a couple weeks in there or three weeks or whatever and not be overgrazing because the plants are dormant. The danger is when plants are actively growing, that's when you want to kind of be moving. And the benefit from that is if you take one bite and whip through is that the plants start to tiller. So they start to thicken up. So we see a density of pasture, whereas what's happening is most people are not allowing that recovery time and you get this openness. So we shouldn't see any bare ground, but we see bare ground on, on horse places. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And you just touched on a few key things there. Um, and I'll try to sort of string this together and, and, and get you to go a little deeper just so people are understand what you're talking about. So density of plants, obviously that, you know, when they're thin, the sun's hitting the soil instead of hitting the solar panels of the plants. What does that cause? Like, why is that an issue? Uh, it can be issues for so on so many different levels. So if you ever have bare ground, you're putting your microbes on a starvation diet because they've been fed by the plant and by those solar panels. But also what we start to see is that bare ground, you can do this for yourself, get a temperature probe and look at the difference between bare ground and underneath a plant. And you'll see it's hugely different. It's much, much hotter in summer. It'll be much cooler in winter and spring. So we see soils that are very slow to warm up. So you see the plants are, take some longer to get away in spring. So horse properties often have much shorter growth windows because they're compacted, because they have some bare ground. The other thing that happens under bare ground is we get a buildup of bacteria and without kind of getting too complex, but you get these bust and boom cycles of bacteria. And every time they bust and boom, they release nitrates. Um, and so we know about nitrates are getting a lot of attention in New Zealand at the moment because of the relationship with colon cancer in humans. Um, it's carcinogenic, uh, blue baby syndrome, uh, we see nitrates in animals um, can cause acidification. Uh, it takes the oxygen out of their blood supply. Worst case scenario, we'll see dead animals. So animals can actually die from nitrates. Um, and then what we'll see are the nitrate weeds germinating. So your nitrate weeds might be thistles. It might be um, red root pigweed, fat hen, lamb's quarters. Just trying to think of different common names are always different around the world. Um, over here, we have a plant called kosher. It loves those nitrates, um, nettles, uh, foxtail barley. Anyway, there's a bunch of these weeds that are specifically trying to mop up nitrates and get that ground covered. And so if we're seeing a lot of those, uh, you don't wanna be grazing that stuff. That is not good for your animals. It's not good for animal performance, weight gains, anything. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's only part of why bare ground is bad. I could go <laughs> on and on and on. We could yeah. spend hours just on bare ground is bad. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I know. And and another thing you touched on there was basically the difference between recovery time and given that that those plants the, the time they need to recover versus the danger or the risk of overgrazing by having your animal in that block for two days instead of one day, say at the, at the height of growing season or whatever the case might be. How do you view that, that risk analysis if you're dealing with somebody who basically doesn't have 16 blocks, you know, that they just can't quite swing that? Are they, you know, do you run the risk of overgrazing or, or, and, and, and thus given more recovery time to your other blocks? Or mm -hmm. do you keep moving and basically you're cutting into your recovery time? Um, we talk about earning the right. You've got to earn the right to graze like that. And if you are not going to do that in terms of increasing the number of cells or the recovery time, then you need to pay for it. And you're going to pay for it in seeds. You're going to pay for it in um, biostimulants or lime or animal health bills. <laughs> like, there's a cost that's going to catch up with you somewhere along that. And it might be, oh, you know, 
you want to do a whole lot of herbicides or whatever. Um, and so it's kind of like, do you want to be proactive and really plan for the long term? Or are we always going to be reactive? And so with some clients, they're always going to be reactive. That's cool. Okay, we've only got four. We can only split this into four. That's fine. When animals come out, we're going to do a recovery program. And so they'll do a, a spray and it, it with these biostimulants. And they could just do that on a quad bike, right? You can just have a little spray tank on the back of the quad bike, come in after the horses come out. And we have, you know, hygiene sprays or digestion sprays. We want to see manure disappear. You know, uh, people have these horse manures that are like lethal weapons. Um, because the digestive system of your horse isn't working, because the microbiology in that horse isn't working, just the same as in your soil. So are you using antomentics? Are you using you know, some kind of chemical drenches? Is the forage quality so poor that the manure won't break down? And so that's one of the observations that we have is like looking at that pile of manure, looking at the consistency of that manure. Um, and then you know, should, that should break down in just a few weeks. It should just disappear. But people don't, they're out there harrowing these lethal weapons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that, yeah, that's very interesting. So one more question um, on something that we've touched on a bit, and that's compaction, which of course with horses is, you know, to some degree almost unavoidable in 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 a lot of ways. And you said um, before about getting that rotation system in place and getting those horses, you know, moved regularly. Is there anything else that people need to do to help aerate and get the air to the to the soil? Or do you find that just getting those plants healthier and increasing those that root those root systems to break up the soil? Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, so who builds that structure is that microbial plant relationship. So if you're undermining that and then overgrazing, we're undermining the root system, then we'll see that soil structure collapse. Um, I do like the use of aerators in the first couple of years when I work with people. Um, and then they can park that or they can sell that piece of equipment because you start to have a system that works. We had one right. winter that was super wet and we were driving the tractor down to our bottom fields to feed hay, which was a disaster. Anyway, this is what we did. Um, and as we're driving that tractor down every single day, we ended up building these ruts that were as deep as the tractor. So we could no longer drive the tractor down there because you literally couldn't. Um, and what was so fascinating was the season changed. Within three weeks, those ruts were totally gone. And we kicked them into them to just take a look. And the whole thing was just heaving with worms. And we had on average about 70 worms per shovel, square shovel. So that system was alive. That system's able to repair. So even running over the ground with horses with shod hooves and being idiots like horses will be sometimes um, <laughs> doesn't mean that you're automatically going to have compaction that compaction is happening because you have a microbial imbalance right. or you have a mineral imbalance so addressing that in terms of what is causing this compaction um, and yeah not nipping plants off so there's no root system to to build that metropolis very interesting very good is there anything that you'd like to add to our conversation i know we could go on for a long time and and i would like to pick your brain a lot more but just for oh, we for are going to have a cup of tea when you get here i tell you <laughs> for our listeners is there anything more you'd like to add as far as um anything more they need to understand in terms of 
how, what they need to do. And, and, and a lot of times it does look too big. Like I understand where people are coming from when they say, oh, we just, we can't do that. And sometimes it just is a change of thinking or you got to get creative. Like you say, with your, um, your inputs, if you can't get 16 cells, then you're going to have to pay for it some other way. There's those creative solutions that we can, we can, we can always do something to make a step or make a move towards um, trying to manage things a little bit differently. So anything else you'd like to add there? I think some of the best producers I work with are brilliant um, in achieving their regenerative goals because they're asking those why questions. So starting to ask that why question about, is it compaction? Please get a shovel, dig a hole, start looking at what's happening beneath the ground. You see these really dense, thick, deep roots, or does everything just hit this <laughs> pan and then go sideways? Um, so digging holes, starting to ask those why questions and, you know, start to interrelate that with thinking about what would this be like in the wild how would what would these animals be eating how would they be moving how can we replicate that the most that we can because out of that will come health you know we don't necessarily have to provide absolutely everything you know and i'm i have concerns about people thinking that you can replace everything as a supplement in, in a bag and it's like we can't we shouldn't be doing that for our own health it's the diversity of species and metabolites in that animal's diet. And that all comes from microbiology. So um, I think just starting to shift some of the context of, of looking at a landscape and thinking about landscapes um, and really, you know, horse owners love their horses. How can we, you know, really nourish that horse's well-being? make sure that they're not bored out of their brains, that they've got diversity to go and forage for or, or to walk to or, yeah, so I think put yourself in your horse's hooves and go, okay, well, well, how can I make this landscape more interesting? Absolutely, absolutely. And do you find in your work um, that there's more and more people that are open to thinking this and, and maybe not even just in the horse world, but in, in, in all of your work, are you finding more and more people are open to these new, new, new ideas and, uh, and ways of doing things? Yeah, the newest, oldest ideas. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, we're seeing a, a total revolution. Um, you know, it's larger and larger scale intensive operations that are reaching out, you know, large scale cropping. Um, when I when we stopped consulting, our average client size was 10,000 acres. You know, they're sizable operations that are really asking the questions. Um, and I think that's coming from consumers. I think it's coming from concerns about climate mitigation and water quality. You know, seeing some big, every, it's a perfect storm right now. And so you could let it be really overwhelming or go, wow, there's just a world of opportunities out there right now for people that are interested in full ecosystem restoration. Um, so no, it's it's been a very exciting time to be on the planet. And I just, I feel sad that I have to say no to people that I just I physically, I am regenerating myself. I'm not going to do all of these extra projects that sound really fun. And I got FOMO going on, but anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You gotta, you gotta do that sometimes. And, uh, and, you know, there's different seasons for different things in, in life. So that's, that's perfectly fine. Now, um, where can people learn more about what you do? Uh, websites, social media handles, and obviously your book. 
anything else that you mm -hmm. can point people to for um, further information. Yeah, please follow me, Integrity Soils, on Instagram. I really, Instagram's probably my favorite because I like the pretty pictures, and that's how I found you, Ben. <laughs> um, and yeah, Nicole Masters, as well as Integrity Soils, I've got both of those on Instagram, and then integritysoils.co.nz uh, for my online courses. So I've got quite a range of intensive, including the soil horse course horse course for soils or i don't know something like that um but yeah awesome that's fantastic and and your book is it available on amazon and, and major retailers amazon and what i really love for people to do is go down to your bookstore and ask bookstores to stock it i think that would be really cool i've had yeah. um a lot of like school kids reach out and say that they've read my book i'm like how did you find it it's so cool um so yeah, encouraging schools to 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 read it because it, it's a book that kind of really helps to connect people with that complexity. And what I was aiming for was fairly accessible language, you know. And, right. and soil is so important. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for taking time today to sit down with me, and we'll definitely be um, sitting down when we get over there and and having a good visit. We will indeed. I'm looking forward to it. I hope your travels go well. Yeah, enjoy the trip. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for watching, guys. Quick reminder, don't forget to go to Nicole's website, integritysoils.com. Use the discount code capital TRUE, capital WEST25 for 25% off her soil health course for equine management. And, uh, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter or check out our website for our clinic schedule coming up this fall and winter throughout the western states. Hope to see you there. Have a good one. We'll catch you down the road. Well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Life in the Saddle podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share and leave a five-star rating or review. Remember, you can find us on social media or our website, truewesthorsemanship.com.